We are going to continue teaching this morning on the sacraments, and that includes Holy Communion again, part two. We have a, a PowerPoint if you want to go ahead and display the first slide there. We said a lot of things last week that seemed to bless people tremendously, and there's even more that I could say beyond this morning, but I feel like we should move on. Last week and today will be like drinking from the fire hose again, and it's a lot to take in. I think every communion service or maybe, I don't know, every third one we do, I may take more time to teach on it so that we revere the things of God uh, with a greater sacredness. We, we have to acknowledge, I think, as Americans, we just make everything easy and common and chintzy and we market it. We make a bumper sticker out of it. And we're really taking the things of God and rubbing our culture all over it rather than taking our God and rubbing him all over our culture and cleaning it up. And rather than cleaning our nation up, we're perverting the church. So I've really enjoyed this study, though it has been a very taxing, all-consuming study for me personally. It's something I'm doing several hours every day. But let's review the sacraments again real quick as we advance. Sacraments it comes from the Latin sacramentus. It means mysteries. Mysteries are spoken of 27 times in the New Testament. And to borrow from our Catholic brothers and sisters, and now I acknowledge not every Catholic's a brother, sister, or sister, but neither is every Baptist, neither is every Pentecostal. There are folks lost in every denomination, and there are folks found in every denomination. So I don't want to beat up on the Catholics unless I can beat up on the word of faith. And I think you know me well enough, I beat up on everybody, if I can find scripture. I don't mean to beat up on them, but we have to stand for God's word, and every denomination has those offshoots and outliers that pervert things. So according to the high churches, and those are churches that practice liturgies and acknowledge a, or recognize a priesthood that we don't, we don't have priests in the Protestant movement. We have ministers. The Catholics operate a lot on priesthood, and I've, I've known several. One of my good friends is a Catholic priest, but he probably has more of a shepherd's heart than a lot of guys I've met among the evangelicals. Um, Anyway, that's a semantical argument aside. The Catholics define a sacrament as a ritual that reflects a New Testament mystery. A sacrament is a ritual that reflects or symbolizes a spiritual truth. And the key definition we've given, we'll give it every week we study this, is that a sacrament is a ritual that actualizes what it symbolizes, or we would say it this way, it's a ritual that makes power available. The Catholics would also say that a sacrament is a material sign of, a, of an invisible mystery. So we saw that with water baptism. We started looking at that last week with Holy Communion. The Catholics and the high churches call Holy Communion the Eucharist, which I want us to be intelligent on and not mock it. And it simply comes from the Greek word uh, eucharios, which means thanksgiving which when you think about it is a pretty wonderful thing to call it because it's, it's mimicking and imitating Jesus when he broke bread and gave thanks. So that's why they call it the Holy Eucharist. We call it communion or Holy Communion or uh, the Last Supper, I suppose. And uh, there are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. We will cover all seven of them. None will we cover as in-depth as we will communion, I don't think. But uh, in no particular order... Baptism, communion, penance, confirmation, ordination, anointing the sick, 
and marriage. These are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. We probably readily recognize five of those. The two we would have a little bit of trouble with is penance and confirmation. And I will teach you what they believe there and how we actually do kind of honor that the same, but we just don't recognize it. Whether we want to admit it or not, we practice penance. All penance is is the doctrine that you acknowledge that when you sin, it doesn't just hurt somebody, it damages your soul. And though you confess your sin and they believe in the confession of sin and they're receiving of forgiveness, they acknowledge there's some damage that has been done that needs to be atoned for. That's maybe where we would take a point of conflict with it. But though we might not agree with the doctrine of self-atonement, we practice it nonetheless. We come to church and sing a little harder. We actually show up on time for once. We give a little extra in the offering. So though we don't verbalize a doctrine of penance, we practice it. So I want us to maybe have a little mercy on the Catholics. And again, I'm not going to turn us pro-Catholic, or I should say Catholic. I am, in a sense, pro-Catholic in that there are born-again brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, and they have been preaching the gospel way longer than the Protestants have. And then we do have tongue-talking brothers and sisters among the Catholics and the Episcopals and the Lutherans, and we cannot deny that. Anyway, moving on, we covered last week, and we're going to slow down and cover more in depth now. There are three symbolic breads of the Old Testament, and we said that the first one we see is Melchizedek's bread, and that's in Genesis chapter 14. When Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine to meet Abram as he was returning from the battle of the kings... Uh, when he went to go seek after his nephew Lot and help recover them. And the four kings, with the help of Abraham, defeated the five kings. And as they returned towards Jerusalem, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that is the king of peace, comes out, and he was a priest as well. He's a very mysterious figure in the Bible. We have three references to him here in Genesis 14, then in the Psalms, and then in Hebrews. There is an interpretation of the psalmist where it says, Thou forswear and will not repent, thou, thou shalt be forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's a doctrine I've never heard of, I don't know it enough to disagree with it, that though David wrote that psalm, and we know it's a foreshadow of Christ, and it's a messianic psalm, that that promise was actually also had a, a timely prophecy for David himself, in that David was a Melchizedek priest, which that's how messianic prophecies write or work. There's an application in the moment for the writer, and there's also a future application that Christ fulfilled in his day, and then there's an eschatological or an eschaton uh, fulfillment when the end of all things comes to pass. I've never heard David called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, but it would explain why he played priest so much and didn't die for it. Because he was not a Levite. That's where the priests come from. He was a Judite. But he got to be a special order of priest, which is why he could eat the showbread. If you remember that story. And it's why he could have a linen ephod. And it's why he erected his own tabernacle, his own tent in the city of David and had the Ark of the Covenant there. And God did kill him not for any of that. But it may be because he recognized and wrote about it in the psalmist that says, I, you have forsworn and won't repent that I will forever be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, we know David is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ because he's a king and anyway, Jewish tradition holds that Melchizedek was Shem, the righteous son of Noah. That's Jewish tradition. I just want to give you that 
tidbit. And also Genesis 49.11 is the first time that wine is referred to as the blood of grapes. So we see in the book of beginnings a parallel between grape juice and blood. That aside, we see the symbolism of the, key, the king priest coming to meet Abram with bread and wine. And then Abram tithes to Melchizedek. And the Bible says in Hebrews, and truly the tither is more blessed than the one that receives the tithes. So if you want a New Testament reason to tithe, find the book of Hebrews. Find the passage on Melchizedek and realize that when you're tithe, you're more blessed than the one who receives the tithes. The second bread is one we want to focus on uh, for a little bit longer this morning. And that is the show bread. We looked at this a little bit last week. In the tabernacle, and here's a cutaway of Moses' tabernacle. This is not Solomon's temple, but this is the portable tent they used for several hundreds of years through the time of Moses, 40 years, into the time of Joshua, 40, 38 years, to the time of the elders, 40 years, to the time of the judges, 350 years, through the first uh, King Saul, into the 40 more years, into the time of David, 40 more years into the temple of Solomon. So that's, you know, a couple hundred years. They use this as their sanctuary. And you see the cutaway of the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory coming down upon it on the mercy seat. You see the candelabra, commonly called a menorah on the left side. You see the altar of incense facing the curtain opposite the Ark of the Covenant. And then you have the table of showbread, which is to the right or along the right wall. And so the table of showbread was established to sit in the tabernacle. We said that even though the King James calls it the showbread, S-H-E-W, that's King James trying to translate it without knowing what to do with it. Modern translations will call it the bread of God's presence or the bread of presence. And literally the word means the bread of God's face. That's what it means. The word show, the word presence is the word for face. And that's interesting that this is the bread of God's face. The bread one of the reasons that may be, and this is speculation, and I like it. It's not my speculation, but I adopt it as my own because these are things I've never studied before. The bread of the presence is introduced in commands given to Israel right after Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders went up to the mountain and saw the God of Israel. And the Bible says twice. It emphasizes twice there in Exodus 24. They saw God. And before the passage moves on, it says, and they saw God. It is also interesting, it says that they saw God and they ate and drank in his presence. Now, New Living Translation says, and they ate and drank a covenantal meal. New Living Translation adds that because it's inferred in the language. But this is a passage of the Bible I've read many times, never saw that. They go up to the mountain, they see God, they eat in his presence, they see God, and it says, and he did not kill them. So they come down from the mountain, and that's when this is ordained, and this is the bread of God's face. Why? They just saw God. It's pretty wild. It's also called in Leviticus 24, the bread of the everlasting covenant. So the show bread, the bread of God's presence, the bread of God's face is also called the bread of the everlasting covenant. This is like many things in the Old Testament. It has numerous names. These were 12 cakes 
And these I don't like because according to the Bible, they're made out of four and a half pounds of flour a piece. Those look like giant wheat thins, not four and a half pounds. So four, we'll say four pounds times 12 cakes, that's 50 pounds of bread, unleavened. We know each one represents the tribe, a, a different tribe of Israel. So it's a bread of the everlasting covenant for each tribe because all tribes were equal in God's eyes and all of them, in a sense, got to see God's face. It represents fellowship, communion, and that God would in no ways cast anyone off. They all had an equal place. Uh, these 12 cakes were made and replaced every Sabbath. The old cakes were then eaten by the priests in a sacred place. I, my wife said, I'd hate to be the guy that had to eat all that. I said, I'm pretty sure they got to share it among all the priests, because come the next Sabbath, you're like, do I have to do this again? <laughs> I think if you're one of the priests, you're like, can we, can we hire more help? I mean, just to eat this, because four and a half pounds of flour. But now also let me back up and say this. In ancient Israel, in the Bronze Age, which is when this is, uh, bread was the premier food. That was, bread is the staff of life, we've heard it said. The Bible even uses that terminology where God says, I will break your staff, which means I will starve you to death. But the reason is because it was the major source of calories. And all my research on the botany book, I found many places where they estimated the average caloric intake from bread was 60 to 70% of their daily calories. Don't think of bunny bread. Don't think of whole grain bread. Think of rough ground bread made from old school grains of wheat and barley. That is also why there was no such thing as a gluten allergy back then because they weren't expediting the yeast process. Why wasn't gluten killing anybody back in those days? We have so much genetically modified food today treated with so many different chemicals. Um, no time to get into all that. The showbread was placed on the table of showbread along with bowls for frankincense and flagons for libation offerings, usually wine. So you see this little kind of looks like a tissue box. I'm sure that's to represent holding the frankincense and then the flagon or the giant cup. And we acknowledged last week, looking at this picture of a replica, it looks like a communion table to us, does it not? Especially if you were ever raised Catholic or Lutheran Episcopal, where you'd share the cup with everybody. Anybody ever received communion in a high church where the priest comes down and give you share the same cup, they wipe it and turn it. I don't know how they did that through COVID. Um, and I'm not mocking it. I just wonder because that's important to them. What's that? They dunked it. Oh, they put the wafer and then put it on your mouth. Yeah. I did see a, a funny meme during COVID where the, an Episcopal was christening a baby with a squirt gun. That way they could maintain social distancing. <laughs> Parents are holding the baby. The priest has a mask on. and He's got a super soaker. And he's just, you know, infant baptism via super soaker. And that's probably a little bit closer to the size of each cake because that's a lot bigger a uh, bread cake. Still, I don't know if that's four and a half pounds of flour. Now, mind you, no, no eggs in there, no yeast in there, just flour and oil baked. This thing's going to keep you full for about seven days. <laughs> During the intertestinal period, and this is where things get, these things just... It, it blows my mind. And this is where I, I hurt for seeker-friendly churches whose messages have devolved the Bible into self-help manuals, what we call uh, moral theistic uh, deism, moral therapeutic, excuse me, moral therapeutic deism, where we take the Bible, make it a book of morals, 
about a deity and it just makes us feel good. When you study, when you have a preacher that's willing to study and not just golf or ride motorcycles all week, there's things to be uncovered that have already been known but forgotten. So during the intertestamental period, that is between Ezra and Nehemiah and the closing of the canon of the Bible and the book of Matthew in the New Testament, approximately 400 years, also called the second temple period, Zerubbabel came out, built the new temple. Then Herod, when he became Tetrarch, uh, built and expanded onto the temple to try to make it as great as Solomon's. During that period, there arose a new tradition. And mind you, the Jews were always looking for ways to obey the law. They were interpreting, what did God mean when he said, do this? How, how can we fulfill that? Because they, they realized they were slaves for 70 years because they didn't do the word. That's going to leave a lasting impression on you. If we went into slavery because we didn't do the word, let's find new ways to do the word. So this tradition arose, the one I'm about to describe to you, that during the three annual pilgrimage festivals, that is Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Ingatherings, all of them are agricultural festivals, the priests developed the tradition of bringing out this table of showbread to the temple courtyard. And they would raise it up in the temple courtyard for all to see. This helped fulfill the commandment, quote, quoting Deuteronomy 16, and all males must come to Jerusalem and present themselves to God. Actually, go to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 reads, three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover. In the Feast of Weeks, that's Pentecost. In the Feast of Tabernacles, that's in gathering. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. That is, you will come to me and bring me an offering. Now, there's several more festivals than that, but those are the three pilgrimage festivals that require all the males to travel. Now, in the King James, it says, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord. The word before in the Hebrew is the word panim, which is face. Same as the showbread, the panim lechem, or the bread of his face. So they would bring the table of showbread out and literally raise it up with the bread of his face so that they could fulfill this commandment and literally stand in the presence of God's face. That helped them. They're, they're, again, they're looking for new ways to fulfill the law to the nth degree. And that, that's pretty cool that they would do that. They would hold up this table of showbread. I'm sure two priests lifting it up so everybody could see it. But what's crazier than that, and I'll prove it to you because what I'm about to tell you, you're not going to believe is real, but I'm going to read it to you from the Targum of Jonathan. If I think that's the right reference. They would hold this up for all to see. And the priests would yell, behold, God's love for you. Babylonian Talmud. They used to lift it, the table of showbread up, and exhibit the bread of the presence on it to those who came up for the festival, saying to them, Behold God's love for you. Babylonian Talmud, 3rd or 4th century BC or AD, maybe 5th century. This was a tradition. So Jesus would have experienced this going as a boy, a male, and they would hold up that table of showbread, and he would hear the high priest show the bread of God's presence and the flagons of wine and the frankincense. And he would hear them say, behold, God's love for you. 
So now at the time of Christ, we have a table of bread and wine presented in the temple courtyard three times in a year and proclaimed to be a demonstration of God's love for you. Or as another translation states from an, another version of the Babylonian Talmud, this is how they translate the same Hebrew, the omnipresent one's affection toward you or the affection of the omnipresent one toward you. So you can see how they would also translate it, God's love for you. So pretty wild. The table, uh, the, the bread of God's face, a table of bread and wine, a table that is a demonstration of God's love for you. Now, mind you, we're talking about the breads of the Old Testament and their symbolism. That then brings us to manna. And this is where we bog down a little bit here. Manna simply means what is it? And this is important because there's a, a botanical teaching or explanation that says it's the excretion of the tamarisk tree. And they do secrete this kind of sugary thing that is edible. But if these are people living in Egypt and they're living around tamarisk trees, they're not going to look at it every morning and go, what is it? They know exactly what it is. They're looking at something they've never seen before. Plus, the tamarisk tree only secretes it a few months out of the year and not enough to feed a million people. And it comes down every morning, every morning, every morning for 40 years it comes down. It was given at the very beginning of the Exodus, only one month after their departure. It was given in answer to their complaining for food. Now, what's also interesting is that they come out with flocks and herds. So if you're hungry... Go kill something. Isn't that like us? We have all this around us, yet we find something to complain about. And usually it's because we don't want to do for ourselves. So they complain, and God gives them bread from heaven. They were given one omer, or about one liter, every day. And then one omer, or one liter, was kept in a golden pot in the Ark of the Covenant. Psalms calls it the grain of heaven and calls it angel's food. I like how Psalms calls it grain from heaven, because if you read closely in Exodus and Numbers, you see that they had to collect it and then grind it as if it were literally a grain, because apparently it was literally a grain. And they would grind it in mortars or grind it on pestles, and then they would either seed it, that is make uh, cream of wheat out of it or oatmeal, or that they would bake it and make cakes out of it. But they still had to do the work. It's a miracle, but they still have to do work. And if you don't go out and collect it, you have nothing. If you collect too much and you want to binge eat, it brings worms and you get judged by God. So you get just enough every day. Several aspects of manna, because we don't have time to look at all of this, but if you know your Bible and you guys do, then you can bear witness with this. It started with the cry for food. It stopped when they entered into the promised land 40 years later. It was supernatural. It was from God and it was out of heaven. It was daily except for the Sabbath when there wouldn't be any. And it was necessary. It maintained their caloric needs because that's how ancient worlds ate. It's also why the Bible says man shall not live by bread alone. And it was necessary. It sustained Israel until they entered the promised land. It was God's daily promise to sustain them on the way to the promised land. So by the very fact that it would appear every day should encourage them that God's got you in the palm of his hand. One, uh, one um, scholar I read after said he believed the reason the Bible tells us explicitly it tasted like honey was to remind them you got a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's a foretaste. Here's a foretaste. 
keep, keep marching. Here's a foretaste. If I can give you a little bit of honey today, you'll get some if you'll just stick with the program. I like that interpretation. Now, as we covered last week, in the intertestamental period, the Jews were working out their doctrine much like we do. They were taking their Old Testament, their prophets, and the Torah, and they were working out messianic eschatology because they're looking for the promise of the Messiah. Plus, they've been under oppression for 400 years. First the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, now the Romans. So yeah, they want some deliverance. And they've got promises of it. And like you and I are looking at our world going, man, it's getting worse and it's getting messed up and it's getting darker. And I think Sodom and Gomorrah would reject most of what's going on in America. They'd say, that's too far for us. That's messed up. Uh, We're looking for the Lord to come back at any moment. We're working out eschatology ourselves with the scriptures we've been given. Granted, their scriptures were more new to them than ours are to us. They were only 400 years removed from their youngest scripture. We're 2,000 years removed from our youngest scripture. So they were developing doctrine, looking at their scriptures, all of it anticipating the coming Messiah. We said last week, one of the big doctrines that was in Judaism at the time was the expectation of a new exodus. Why? Because they were once oppressed by the Egyptian empire, and now we've been oppressed for the same amount of time, 400 or so years, by multiple empires, it's time to be free. You can see the patterns. We build eschatology the same way, guys. We look for patterns, as it was in the day of Noah, as it was in the day of Lot. We're looking for patterns to help anticipate what's going to happen in the future, right? They're doing the same thing because they're serving the God who had been revealed to them at that point. They were looking for a new exodus. They were 400 years under the oppression of Pharaoh. Now they've been for 400 years under the oppression of the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And if there's going to be a new Exodus. There has to be a new Moses. We looked at that scripture from Deuteronomy 18. You're there. Uh, Look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Let's read this real quick. They're looking for a new Moses. All their doctrine, they have scripture to back it up. It doesn't mean everybody believed this, just like not everybody in the body of Christ today believes the same eschatology. It doesn't mean we all believe the same thing on the gifts of the Spirit. It doesn't mean we all interpret the Trinity the same way, but we all have a a basic orthodoxy. So when I talk about what their messianic expectations were, don't believe or don't misunderstand me to say this is what they all believed. It's not how it ever works. But there, this is a doctrine that's floated out there. Some hold to it, some don't. We looked at three weeks ago with the Essenes, that in the time of Christ, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And even the Essenes were divided between the, the uh, celibates and those that would marry. So it's, it's called uh, factions. There were multiple factions and sectarians in the body of Christ. Even for the first hundred years after Christ's resurrection, the Christians were called the sectarians because they were still viewed as Jews, but they had followed a new sect. So Judaism was used to all this sectarian factionism. Each one had a little bit different doctrinal thrust. So when I tell you what I'm about to show you, it doesn't mean they all believed that, but it was a common doctrine. Okay, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord thy God will raise up for thee a prophet, capitalized in the King James, because they recognized it was messianic in nature, from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. So a prophet like Moses, the messianic expectation was that there was coming a new Moses to bring us through a new exodus. That's what their eschatology was in anticipating their coming Messiah. Unto him shall you hearken according to all that the Lord uh, that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in that day, 
of the assembling, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto me, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak, and then it goes on to talk about false prophets. So here is this prophecy of a prophet like Moses coming. So they're looking for that guy, and it's the Messiah. We said they, they taught and believed that the new Moses would establish a new covenant. He would establish a new temple. He would lead them into a new promised land. But that also requires that if there's a new Moses and a new Exodus and a new covenant, there has to also be new manna. So they actually had a very complex doctrine of manna in the intertestinal period. So there's three common beliefs or expectations they held concerning, we'll call it eschatological manna. Let's call it, let's call it messianic manna. I don't know what the term is among Ju, uh, Judeo theology, but we'll just call it for the sake of your notes, messianic manna. That's what they built a doctrine around. So the first belief was that manna had existed before creation. Now, if you pause, and, and we know where this is going because Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down. Well, he, he existed before creation. But this is one of their beliefs. Manna existed before the creation. And we have a couple targums on that. A targum, this targum of Pseudo-Jonathan is a, a translation of the Torah from Ar into Aramaic. And, and with the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan, he puts a little bit of his doctrine into his translation. We would call that a paraphrase. Probably the worst example of that right now is the Passion Bible, which jams charismatic extreme doctrine into the New Testament and says things that the Greek doesn't say. I don't recommend or encourage the Passion Bible not to build doctrine. Just FYI, it's the newest Bible out there. It's very controversial. It's a single-person paraphrase, which is the worst kind to have because you have nobody double-checking you or holding you accountable for how you translate agapeo or eros or what have you. Anyway, but I just want you to see this is what the Aramaic Bible of the Aramaic Torah was teaching the people, and you can see their beliefs come through. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will bring down from you bread from heaven, which has been reserved for you from the beginning. So this is Exodus 16. God says, we would, the King James says, I'll bring you bread from heaven. He adds that has been reserved from the beginning. This is the doctrine that bread existed, manna existed before creation. And then chapter 16, verse 15 later, it says, when the children of Israel saw it, they were amazed and they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that was, was reserved from the beginning in the heavens on high. And the Lord is giving it to you to eat. So there was a doctrine that manna existed before man's creation. That's important. It's a common doctrine held in the era of Christ. Doctrine number two, manna continued to exist in heaven even after it ceased on earth in the time of Joshua. All right? Manna continued to exist in heaven even after it ceased on the earth in the time of Joshua. Where did we get that from? And God set them in the firmament of the heaven Skies. This is Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud or the Talmud are basically commentaries on what are called Holocaust or the laws. And so it's, what you're seeing here is a commentary. Now, in our library, we have a lot of different commentaries. We have Delil, uh, Ke uh, Keel and Delich. We have um, 
I've got a big bunch of Pentecostal commentaries. We have got Baptist commentaries. Commentaries reveal common doctrines and common understandings of scriptures. They don't always all agree, but these are common Jewish doctrines. So this Babylonian Talmud is telling us that he's giving you the interpretation of God set them in the heaven, the firmament of the heaven skies. He gives the interpretation is that in which millstones stand and grind manna for the righteous. For it is said, this is how they come to that conclusion. And he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he caused manna to rain upon them for food. So he's giving the interpretation, the Babylonian Talmud, of what it means by skies. Well, skies is where there are heavenly millstones grinding manna still for righteous people today. So what we have is manna existed before man. Manna continues to be made after the promised land. These are critical doctrines. If manna, I ask the question, if manna is still being made, what was its purpose? When would it be revealed? Jump with me to Revelation 2, 7. Let's read a verse here just to give you a huh. Manna is still up there being made according to the Babylonian Talmud. Revelation, I'm sorry, 2.17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcome will I give to eat of the hidden manna. It seems to be like Jesus is like, yeah, they were pretty accurate. What in the world is hidden manna? Babylonian Talmud took a stab at it better than anything I've read in the last three weeks. So, not that we've ever researched this in depth. Third doctrine of three. Third doctrine concerning manna. The Messiah, that is the second Moses, would cause manna to come again. So there's this messianic expectation that when the Messiah comes, this is a common Jewish doctrine in the time of Christ, that when the Messiah comes, he will bring manna with him again. These other two are great. These other two doctrines are great. They're kind of a little out there, a little esoteric, not a lot of uh, Targums or Talmuds or Mishnas or Midrashes to back it up. But this one here was very widely held by almost everybody, and that's evidenced by all the scriptures or all the commentaries that allude to it. So let's look at a couple on this. As the first redeemer caused manna to descend, this is Ecclesiastes Rabbah. This is uh, from their doctrinal writings. As the first redeemer caused manna to descend, as it is stated, because I shall cause to rain bread from heaven for you, so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. So there it is, pretty state, one verse, one commentary. Just like the first redeemer, Moses, caused manna to come down, the later, latter redeemer will do the same. Uh, Michalita on Exodus, you will not find manna in this age, but you shall find it in the age to come. That's a rabbinical reference to the Messianic era, for whatever that's worth. The miracle in the, uh, the Messianic era, the miracle of manna would happen once again. And then uh, Genesis Rabbah 82.8 says, manna was called the bread of the world to come, which kind of feeds this doctrine in multiple directions. Another passage, Ecclesiastes Rabbah. Rabbi Barakia said to the name, uh, said in the name of Rabbi Isaac, again, this is how the Talmud works. So and so said that, so and so said that, so and so said, because you never spoke of your own authority, which is why Jesus preached. They marveled because he spoke as one having authority. We always took that to be powerful preaching. No. He said, I say it. Where'd you get it from? Me. Why? Because I am. 
Now, he, no doubt he was a powerful preacher. I'm not trying to belittle that. But this is why they said they marveled because Jesus spoke as one who had authority, not as the Pharisees who were always quoting 19 levels of chain of custody. He said, as the first redeemer Moses was, so shall the latter redeemer, the Messiah be. What is stated to the former redeemer? And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass. Similarly, will it be with the latter redeemer as it is stated lowly and riding upon an ass? They get that dead on. Because even the New Testament quotes that to say, here comes Jesus lowly riding upon an ass. They just came at it from Moses' perspective, not from Zechariah. I think that's pretty amazing. This lets you know the Spirit of God is moving among these authors and these rabbis during this era because they are looking for the Messiah. And many of them found him, but others did not. But when they were looking in the Word to find him, the Holy Ghost is moving on them too, illuminating the Word when they are diligently with the right heart seeking after their God. As the former Redeemer caused manna to descend, as it is stated, Behold, I will cause to rain bread from heaven for you, so will the latter Redeemer cause manna to descend, as it is stated, May he be as rich a grain field in the land. As rich as a grain field in the land. Now, how in the world do you extract that from that verse? I have no idea. But this is how rabbinical hermeneutics often looks. And then one last one. And it will. this is from uh, 2 Baruch 29.3. Uh, and it will come, it will happen that when all that which should come to pass in these parts is accomplished, the Messiah will begin to be revealed and those who are hungry will enjoy themselves and they will moreover see the marvels every day or see miracles every day. So there's this messianic expectation that will be miracles every day and they, those that are hungry will eat and it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high. That sounds like Revelation 2, 17. I will give to you to eat of the hidden manna the treasury of manna. And they will eat of it in those years because they, these are they who will have arrived at the consummation of time. That's another reference to the Messianic era. So th- three pages, five or six of these uh, commentaries on Jewish doctrine and what they expected the Messiah to do when he comes. Now, they weren't all 100% accurate, and I would... U- I would use that as a word of caution to us as we try to build eschatological doctrine. They saw through a glass darkly. Paul said we see through a glass darkly. They're trying to interpret chain of events using Scripture. We're trying to use Scripture to interpret chain of events. I would argue they knew the Bible way better than most of us. Way better. And even without the Holy Ghost, they're hitting pretty close. So don't be upset if your eschatology isn't fulfilled the way you think Jesus should fulfill it. In the end, just say, hurrah, I'm going to heaven. I acknowledge that Israel is at war today. All that went down yesterday. But this thing flares up every 10 years. It doesn't look like the Palestinians have advanced their weaponry any, just their techniques. And Israel still has gunships and tactical nukes. So prepare for a bloodbath the next couple weeks until the world is tired of seeing the Jews destroy the Palestinians but they do have a right to defend themselves. But I might also said, like I said in the last sermon, if Israel would be holy, because they are not, if they would at least keep the Torah, which they do not, if they would quit murdering their babies and quit being so pro-gay, maybe they might dwell a little more safely in their borders. Deuteronomy 28 still applies to them. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, yes, but these are appointed, and what's about to come to Jerusalem will be worse because it is a time of Jacob's trouble. It is the judgment of God upon Israel. It is coming. And the revelation, this is eschatology now, tells us that it'll be used to convert them to their true Messiah. So maybe this is their foretaste. 
I don't want to get into politics or everything coming out of Israel right now, but the Messianic era would be a day of miracles and manna. The heavenly treasury of manna would be opened and heaven's bread would be distributed once again. And the broader sense of the doctrine is that manna would be made available again in the period of Messiah's appearance and the, until the resurrection of the dead. So think about that. What they taught, what this is saying, is that from the time the Messiah appears, there will be manna every day until the eschaton, which is the resurrection of the dead. These were common doctrines and expectations in Christ's day. Go with me to Matthew 6. Hopefully you're following with all of this. It is a lot to cover. What we're doing is basically what's called a cultural and a historical hermeneutical interpretation. We're using the culture that we know to be definitive and history, which we have pretty strong certainty on. And we would even add a theological hermeneutic to it because we're using the theology of the Jews to interpret Scripture and what their expectations were. So... Let's review this real quick. There's this expectation that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be manna again. It's going to be supernatural. And it's going to come from the time, what's called the consummation of time, or, uh, and that's going to be the time from the manifestation of the Messiah until the resurrection of the dead. That doctrine is established in the Old Testament beginning in the book of Job. Our doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is first seen in the, go uh, the, the uh, gospel, the book of Job. So hear this very clearly. Jesus comes on the scene. They're expecting the Messiah to bring manna every day. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, teach us to pray. After this manner, therefore, pray you, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you see the Lord wink at their expectation? Now, that's pretty cool, but there's a giant Greek uh, conflict here. Every Bible will say daily bread or bread of provision. The issue is the word is one of the most controversial words in the Greek New Testament. Give us this day our daily bread. That's manna, day by day. Every different translation will be something a little different. Go, uh, so this Greek word daily bread or daily here is epiosios. This is what is called, actually go to the next thing here. It's a neologism, which means a new word. This word is not found in any ancient Greek writing until the Gospels. Therefore, we have no idea how it was used before in culture, in day-to-day -day usage. So we're left with a translation issue. There's no way to cross-reference it to Homer's Odyssey or any of the philosophers. It's a neologism, new word in ancient uh, texts. Next, next point there. So the best that translators can do is break it down and take it literally. So you take the first part, epi, which is a well-known root, and it means on or above. The next part, usia, which means substance or nature. So there's nothing at all to do with daily in this word. It means above substance, above what is natural. Give us this day bread that is above the normal. One translation is super substantial. What is substantive? What is substantial? Beyond that. 
And it is also translated supernatural. Give us this day supernatural bread. That is the Lord Jesus saying, oh, you got manna coming, but it's not going to be like you think. This is him acknowledging the messianic expectation upon him. Above nature or above substance, supernatural or super substantial. With this, we should say, why? Why give us supernatural bread? After the new Passover, if we're following the pattern of the old Passover, the new Exodus was about to begin. So once Christ is raised from the dead, that's the Passover, we're going to begin a new Exodus. We're going to leave the bondage, not of Rome, but of the devil, of sin. After the new Exodus begins, we will be on the way to the new promised land. And by the fact that we are still praying, this prayer indicates we haven't arrived yet. We are like the Jews who required daily manna on their sojourning. We are still sojourning. And we still pray, Lord, give me supernatural substance every day. Now, part of this is how the Catholics build their doctrine of transubstantiation. That is the doctrine that, that communion elements become the literal blood and the literal body of Christ. They ask you, if you ask them how, they'll say it's a miracle. Don't you believe in miracles? And to that, you can't argue. My counter argument would be, all right, if this is literal manna, then you need to take the Holy Eucharist every day. If you're going to fulfill the typology and if it's literally necessary to inherit eternal life, then you need to do it every day, not just once a month or once a week at Mass. We know that what it represents is fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We receive this daily manna every day because we are still sojourners in this world on our way to the next world. We have not seen the resurrection of the dead. Once the resurrection of the dead happens, we will be one with him. We will not have need of daily manna again. But come to John 6, and this is where we're going to land this message. In John 6, we may cover all the verses, which is over 60, so we have to move quickly. John 6 is considered the Capernaum Discourse. In the beginning of John 6, he's preaching along the Sea of Galilee near Tiberias, and there's a great multitude that follows him there, and they, are, uh, uh, they followed him because of the miracles they saw, which he did on them that were diseased. And then he goes up into a mountain, and the Passover feast is near, and it's night, and he realizes they, uh, there's a great company, and Jesus says unto them, or Philip says, uh, verse 5, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come with him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now notice it's bread again, because that's the primary staple. And he said... And this he said to prove him, verse 6, for he knew, what, he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says unto him, there is a lad here which has five barley loaves, that's poor bread, and two small fishes, which means minners or sardines. There's not much there, but what are they among so many? So then Jesus makes them to sit down or recline. We know he goes on to bless them, multiply the fishes and the loaves. They feed 5,000. All of chapter 6 is about Jesus providing bread. And this is very profound. Verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet, that's Deuteronomy 18, 
that prophet should come into the world. Why did they say that? Because the Messiah would make bread available. This is that prophet. That is a reference to the expectation of Moses' replacement from Deuteronomy 18. They recognize him as that prophet because he multiplies bread. They're not even picky. Barley bread is much cheaper. It's the poor man's bread. They're not even frustrated that it's not wheat bread. They're just thankful for what they've been given. This miracle causes many to believe on Jesus because it fulfills the rabbinical expectation. Okay? Truly, this is that prophet who is to come into the world. Remember, they asked John the Baptist the same thing. We said that last week. Are you that prophet? He said, I am not. I'm a forerunner. Let's keep reading here. Let me see where I'm going to pick up. Verse 25. And when they had found him on the other side, again, same story. He's just set sail in a ship, gone to the other side. They're looking for him. When they found him to the other side, they said, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus said, answered them and said, verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. The, the bread proved it to you. Labor not, therefore, for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for, he hath God, uh, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. They said unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? So they're about to put him to a sign test. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. Notice they're pulling on the messianic expectation that the Messiah can make manna appear. You can multiply bread. That's cool. The Messiah brings manna from heaven. That's, that's the whole reason this, is the, this discourse is unfolding the way it is because of these Targums and these Talmuds, these Midrashes and these Mishnas. This is the doctrinal expectation. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So now Jesus is equating him to manna, himself to manna. He's equating himself to manna. Give us this day supernatural bread. Give me Jesus. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. They said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now, they don't say day by day. They don't say daily for 40 years. Give this bread to us forever, which is a reasonable request because that's what the Messiah has come to do. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. It's all in reference to manna being the supernatural sustenance for God's people and a promise that God has not forsaken them. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. For I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that has sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all of which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And there it is, manna every day until the resurrection of the dead. We see the Lord Jesus hit both these expectations. I will provide manna every day until the eschaton. That just means the end of all things. 
So I, I want you to see he's acknowledging these are the beliefs and the expectations of the day. And they were accurate, but their application was inaccurate. Just like I believe our eschatology is pretty good, but how it's going to unfold is probably going to upset us. <laughs> the Jews then murmured. Well, they were just excited like 10 verses ago. Isn't this typical of God's people? Well, they, fall, they got fishes and loaves, and they follow them all around the Sea of Galilee to then ask them, what else can you do? We really want to believe. And he tells them, oh, this is how it is. And then they get upset. They murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then he says, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. There's the doubling down of the eschaton of the resurrection of the dead. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Give us this day super substantial bread. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. <laughs> I just love that. He always just resets the clock there, doesn't he? Quit resting on the past. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews then strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is also where the Catholics build their doctrine of transubstantiation. I don't accept that doctrine. I reject it, but I understand completely how they come to it. I don't want us to mock them for it. There, there have been more than a thousand battles fought, argued, and ridiculed because they believe in transubstantiation, though they're taking the words of Jesus literal here, and they have their arguments for why we should take it literal. And they use hermeneutics to arrive at it. And that's great. They use the Bible to do it. And in the end, they say it's either a miracle or it's not. You either believe the words of Christ or you don't. And I say, I do believe. I just don't think it's going to really turn into flesh and blood. I think my walk with God through the Spirit and prayer is the sustenance. That is not to diminish the elements here because we know it makes power available. Because if we don't partake of it, we die prematurely. If we don't partake worthily, we're sick and weak. All right. Verse 53, and we're going to wrap this up here in a few minutes. We're getting closer. I just have a page and a half left of notes to read through. You're going to be okay. Now we have about a page here. Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. This is the Catholic basis for the doctrine. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that liveth eateth me, even he, uh, he that 
So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which comes down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. So what he's done here, because he talks about seeing God face to face, there's a nod and a reference to the show bread, which is the bread of God's face. He also said, if any man has seen me, he's seen the Father. Now he's saying he's the manna. He's the daily sustenance. He, his life and his flesh proves that we are entering in a new Passover and a new exodus with a new covenant. And there will be a new temple and a new promised land. He's confirming all of their expectations, just not exactly like they had hoped. And I want us to take note of that because we are building doctrines ourselves and we get upset when God does not check our boxes the way we think he should. We expect the Holy Ghost to move a certain way. We expect prayers to be answered a certain way. And what we need to do at the end of the day is say, Lord, I trust you. I am a finite man studying a book that is written on finite paper, but the truths are eternal. And I'm going to look back in time and see how all this lined up with your truthfulness, your integrity, your veracity, and I will see your hand upon my life. And as for tomorrow, I will trust you when I get there. We as Americans are way too intellectual and way too controlling often to walk with our God. Not that we should be fools and shouldn't use common sense, but we always want to have a plan and a scheme and a backup plan and plan Z. And instead of saying, Lord, I trust you, show me what to do next. Let's finish this, and then I'm going to read you a few notes I have, and that'll be it, and we'll receive communion. Verse 59, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that the disciples murmured at it, he said to them, Death, this offend you. What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is a spirit that quickeneth the flesh, profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But they are, there, there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who there were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto my father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you go away? Will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. They don't debate. They just sit there and say, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. He's kind of checking off these expectations. And then just when we're happy, he throws us a curveball. But we're not changing horses this late in the race. With the Last Supper, Holy Communion, we see Jesus combine the three mystical breads of the Old Testament. Melchizedek's bread and wine, which is how it's set forth in the beginning. Then we come into the temple of showbread, the temple and the table of showbread, which is bread and wine. We add to it the manna, and then it comes out the other end at the Last Supper as bread and wine again. So we see Christ fulfilling the Melchizedek typology and all this other bread introduced in between because he was going to be all of that. We see the Lord fulfill the Melchizedek's bread and wine, the manna and the bread of his presence into one new covenantal sacrament. So thankfully, he does kind of consolidate things. So with that, Holy Communion is fellowship with Jesus. Holy Communion is his body broken for us and our healing. Holy Communion is his blood shed for us to forgive our sins and to ratify the New Testament. 
Holy Communion is a remembrance or a memorial until he returns in the resurrection of the dead. Holy Communion is the new manna sustaining us between the Lord's Passover and the resurrection of the dead. Holy Communion is a demonstration and a reminder of God's love for us. Holy Communion is a token of the bread of his presence. And finally, Holy Communion is a divine sacrament we ought to revere with greater respect and expectation. Amen.